If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now, go. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. This episode, I'm speaking to Christopher Newman, who is a professor of space law at Northumbria University, to find out what laws govern our exploration beyond Earth and what happens if someone dies in space. My name is Professor Chris Newman. I am Professor of Space Law and Policy at Northumbria University. Uh, thanks very much for, for speaking to me today, um, Chris. Thanks for, thanks for coming on the, on the podcast. Space law, that, that's what we're talking about today. And space law, it, it sounds quite like something sort of um, quite, you know, futuristic, like sci-fi. Um, I suppose a lot of people might be um, surprised to hear that something like space law exists. What actually is space law and how, for how long has it, has it been a thing, I suppose? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, would you believe we've had discussion of space law before we actually had human space activity? I mean, you can trace it right back to the turn of the 20th century where lawyers started considering what happens if we deal with law above the clouds. So we already had a sort of an, a notion that this area might need to be regulated. And with the, you know, the onset of, of air travel, we saw the international community get together and, and decide pretty quickly on rules for air travel, rules for passenger flights and safety. So it all kind of coalesced very quickly in the in the first sort of two, three decades of the of the 20th century. Then we obviously had the launch of Sputnik in 1957. This kind of forced the international community into some, you know, to some action. And they recognized that this is going to need regulating. Now that we have objects that can fly in outer space, 
How are we going to manage it? How are we going to regulate it? And so the United Nations formed a committee, the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. That committee has two dimensions. It's got a, a, a scientific and technical subcommittee, and it's also got a legal subcommittee. So it was kind of recognised from a very early start of the, um, and right at the start of human space activity, that this was going to be an area where rules were going to need to be laid down, where it was, you know, to, largely to avoid misunderstanding, largely to avoid, you know, conflict and superpower conflict. And then it's grown as human space activity has grown. So really, the discipline of space law is actually law that occurs in the in outer space. So we, you know, everything that happens in outer space, where the contracts are formed in outer space, intellectual property creation in outer space, there's a whole range of laws that human activity requires to be passed and requires to be regulated. It's the location that we're really interested in. Yeah, and as as far as you're um, aware anyway, um, are all the relevant parties who are involved in um, space flight, are all the, all the nation states and all the, all the governments do they, as far as you're aware, play ball and there's a sort of cross, cross-border cross agreement across the world with all those space-faring nations? So this is one of those really sort of complex governance questions that works on a geopolitical stage. And when we go back to, as I say, the start of the founding of, of, of outer space law and the regulation of outer space activity, we had this committee which works by consensus. So it worked by getting buy-in from all of the members of the Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, drawing up some rules, drawing up some practices, drawing up some established principles. They codified these in 1967 in the form of an international treaty which we refer to as the Outer Space Treaty. That's got some basic principles which outline state obligations and responsibilities that are on states and limitations to states as well. And this has been broadly accepted over the the span of human space activity. Where the problem comes is when the initial sort of Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space had 18 members, We've now got 95 state members of the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. And so, as you can imagine, getting consensus, getting agreement across that is really difficult. So we're in a stage now where we've got we've got established body of treaty laws, but developing that is proving to be really tough. Yeah, I can imagine. I can also imagine the, the sort of, um, the, the fact that governments and administrations come and go must make it quite difficult because if you're sort of, if the if the body itself is say committed to only only the the peaceful use of space by human beings, you might have a government or an administration comes in and doesn't agree with that anymore and wants to and wants to militarize space for for example or you know put 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 weapons up in space and in, in Earth orbit and things like that. You've got a whole range of changing factors that affect the way in which the international community responds to change. You're exactly right. The changing nature of domestic governments, the changing nature of geopolitics generally. I mean, you think about the the late 1980s, early 1990s, that's a seismic change in the organisation of Europe. And one of the key players was the Soviet Union. So the breakup of the Soviet Union, the realigning of their responsibilities, the, the lack of money for space travel then really had an impact on the way in which various states viewed space. So shifting geopolitics, shifting domestic politics, shifting uses and perspectives and strategic objectives, they all feed into this to this uncertainty that exists. We've got the Outer Space Treaty, we've got the other treaties, 
But beyond that, there's disagreement as to how to progress. There's disagreement as to the way in which we should deal with these problems. And that's the real difficulty we're facing with space law, certainly on an international level at the minute. This gaining of consensus. Consensus at the minute is very, very hard, given the current geopolitical situation that we find ourselves in. Yeah, I mean, it, it must also be quite a sort of tumultuous period, or at least a sort of murky period as well, regarding the um, the the boom in um, private uh, space right that we've seen over the past, you know, even in the past five years, we've really seen that amp up with people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson. If you're if you're a sort of multi billionaire who can launch rockets into space at a whim, is is there anything preventing you from just ignoring space law? what's your sort of view on on what's been happening in that regard over the past five years? This is something, again, you've hit on a real issue. Not only do we now have states looking at regulation of outer space, we've also got large companies. We've also got, you know, companies that, that really traditionally work across national boundaries, work across international boundaries. So we've got a, if you like... Not only have we got state stakeholders, we've got commercial stakeholders, we've got military parties interested, we've got private contractors interested. So yeah, whereas the state is embedded within those United Nations treaties as the ultimate arbiter of, of space activity, and you know, under the under the treaties, they've got international responsibility for national space activity. Moving beyond that, you've then got the question of, well, what happens if a company ignores the state? What happens if a company doesn't want to take account of that? Now, we haven't seen that at the minute because, of course, the state, and I'm talking in abstract about the state here, but, you know, a country, if it wants to enforce its law on a company, it's got the levers to do that. It's got the ability to do that. So I think that they're not anxious. Companies aren't anxious to go into a showdown with national governments at this stage. But I can see a point coming where an individual's ambitions in outer space are going to clash with those of the of the administration. And then it's going to be a real interesting, you know, test of strength to see which goes, you know, who goes where. Because I think that is a real problem. And it's something we come back to in certainly in international space law, this notion of enforcement, where we all assume you know, compliance and pragmatic participants. What happens when you get a hostile participant? When, what happens when you get a participant who doesn't want to play along the established rules? How do you manage that? How do you deal with that? That's one of the great problems of international law. And it's not unique to space. You know, cyber realm has this as well. AI are talking about these very issues. Environmental law is grappling with this. So this is, I think, as we as we develop in our globalization, as we develop more transnational activities we're going to have to address these questions they're not unique to space but the problems of space do provide a unique lens through which to view them yeah that's 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 definitely a really interesting way of looking at it i mean i suppose one of the things that has also come about as a result of um private enterprise launching more you know craft into space is people are seriously talking about this notion of space tourism so you might i suppose for example, if if I had enough money, presumably next week, I could just go into space. You know, once once space tourism is a is an established is an established concept, I could just go into space. Whereas, I suppose if you're if you're an astronaut trained by NASA, it's years, and you've got to learn Russian, and you've got to be a fighter pilot, perhaps. Do you, do you see problems with 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 the legal implications of something like space tourism? So, really interesting dimension to this because. 
no matter where you're going in space, you still need the authorization of a state. So let's say we're, we're, we're launching from America. That still needs, that still needs a, a launch license to be issued. So there needs to be a check on the, you know, on, on what's happening, on, on the veracity of the company, on, you know, what's going on. But let's assume that that license has been granted and that there's a fairly flexible, shall we say, empowering regime that looks to that looks to facilitate space tourism. There's two answers to the question. The first answer I'm going to give is a legal one, and the second answer I'm going to give is an economic one. I actually think the economic one is much more interesting and much more powerful than the legal one, because the legal one says that states are allowed to permitted exploration and use of outer space. And you know, quite clearly, tourism is a, is, a, is a legitimate use of outer space that a state can authorise um, activity with. So, you know, a state can issue a launch licence and that use of outer space doesn't contravene the Outer Space Treaty. So from a legal point of view, providing that the state is happy it's discharged its authorisation and supervision uh, duties, then there's no reason why that can't happen. But... We come to the second, the the, the economic reason. Um, you know, firstly, what we're seeing with the with with the, with the space tourism discussions, we're seeing a lot of it's it's a lot of rich people doing it. It's a lot of rich people doing it um, to demonstrate that they can do it. I'm not seeing a, a mass market there at the minute. So there's the first thing. We're not seeing mass market. No, we're not seeing like a package holiday to space. And I, I must confess, I, I would be uneasy if we did because of the safety issues. This is still experimental flight we're talking about here. So, you know, that's that, that's that, that's the first side. And the second side is, you know, th- this is, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. And w- if there is an accident, that's going to have a severe impact upon the space tourism industry. There's no two ways about it. So I think... From a from a from a legal standpoint, providing the state authorizes it, absolutely. From an economic standpoint, I'm not sure it's there yet, and I'm not sure we've got a sustainable space tourism industry in the foreseeable, you know, five ten years time. I would say. Yeah, you hit upon a a, a point that I definitely wanted to um, bring up because it's it's something that you um, have sort of uh, been publicly discussing with one with one of your colleagues, and it's this notion of as more people go into space, the likelihood, the bigger likelihood that someone will die in space. I mean, what what currently happens if, if someone dies in space? So, from a, from a space tourism perspective, I mean, you'd have to be really unlucky because you're actually in space only a very short period of time. Let's rule out mechanical uh, failure. Let's rule out systemic failure, a software failure, for example, because that would be investigated as a normal, you know, as as as, as any sort of accident would be investigated. Um, so there's no real sort of reason to to look to space law too much there, because a lot of the time that it will be it will occur within within air, you know, within the the air law range or the aviation law range. And it will be covered by by normal accident investigation protocols that exist for aviation. However, as we have more long duration flights, then we start to think about, okay, well, what happens then? And then we pivot back to, to international space law. We look at the Outer Space Treaty. Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty I've already talked about international uh, governments have international responsibility for their own national space activities. 
they're authorizing it, they're supervising it, so they're going to be they're going to be responsible for that. Then we move to Article Eight, assuming that a craft is registered, the the, the country to whom the registry is attached to will have jurisdiction and control of that craft. So if if a craft is registered to the UK, they have jurisdiction and control, according to international space law, of that craft. If they have that, then I think we can take jurisdiction and control to assume investigative rights on of, as, as to what happened, you know, and to, to looking into that. The ISS is slightly different because the ISS has got an international governmental agreement which governs it. I think death on the ISS is some, if, if, if an astronaut were to die on the ISS, I think it would be a much more um, collaborative, a much more iterative process, whereby it would be established. That, you know, the nationality of the astronaut I think would come into play um, where it occurred. I think there'd be a whole range of different discussions that would need to occur. Um, so, you know, the, the ISS will treat almost as an outlier. Um, and then moving forward, if we're talking about a lunar colony or something like that, one of the things that I argue in my, uh, in, in, in my, in my discussion on this is that we need to put those agreements in place before we get the colony. So, because this is going to be a traumatic event, it's going to, you know, it's going to be upsetting for the family, it's going to, you know, potentially have international ramifications. This is not something you want to be doing by numbers. This is something that you want to make sure that you've got systems and procedures in place, because you're going to have some fairly difficult discussions of where do we store the remains, where do we store the, the body on the moon, you know, what, what, how do we deal with that, how do we manage that? What then happens? Do we transit it back to Earth? What were the wishes of the individual? What are the wishes of the community? What are the wishes of, you know, is there any particularly religious dynamic to this? So there's a whole range of questions that need to be considered. And I think the best time to consider them is before the, before we even start on the project so that we get it embedded within there. So that, you know, if they need to plan, for example, if they need a, a special room or if they need a special area, that can be part of the mission design. Humans are as much a part of the system as any other element. And I always think it's a mistake to forget that. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Yeah, I mean, presumably if, if, if there was going to be a... Um a permanent, you know, colony on the <clears throat> on the moon or even Mars, you know, further further into the future. Um, things like hospitals, but also even something like a morgue or like you know a, a place to do autopsies. That that would all be required, wouldn't it? Well, you would think so. But again, let's have a think about the type of colonies that we're going to set up there. I mean, it, it's good. In the foreseeable future, when the colony's established, yeah, absolutely. But what about the first few years, even? of something getting set up and getting established. It's it's that gap between nothing and a thriving ecosystem that we've got to address. Because that's going to be quite a... That's going to be a number of years where things can go wrong. And, I mean, there might not be anything that happens. But there might be equally. And, and if it is, it's, as I say, go back to my point, it's going to be traumatic. And it's not the type of thing that you want to be guessing your way through and, you know, leaving it up. You certainly don't want to be leaving it up to three or four different crew members, whether whether the commander decides, whether she decides or or he decides. And and, and that's not something that wants to be happening. I, and especially now we know about it. We, it's, you know, it's a foreseeable risk because we've foreseen it. 
So let's incorporate it into the discussions early on, even if it's just the procedure of having a, you know, having a bag and accepting that it's going to be stored outside on the lunar surface, you know, and, and that might be all right. That might be acceptable. That might be the way to do it. Um, but making sure that there is protocols in place that are clearly understood so that everybody can follow through what's going on. Because again, it's going to be, uh, I would assume there's going to be some element of international collaboration and something like this is an area where there can easily be misunderstandings that can escalate. So best to get it dealt with, best to get it sorted out before the mission takes off so that everybody is aware exactly what's going to happen if something goes wrong. It's morbid and it, it doesn't necessarily, you know, fit the narrative of, of uh, that, that, that people would like with space exploration. But one thing we know about humans, the one predictable thing we can say about humans is that they're going to die. And so we, we, we need to address that as part of a, a as part of becoming a spacefaring civilization, and it can be uncomfortable. It, it's not, you know, it's not the glamorous hardware stuff. It's not the shiny stuff. It's not the exploration stuff. It's not even the lucrative stuff. But it's the mundane type of stuff that's going to see humans, um, you know, rise or fall as an interplanetary species. But how, how do you actually get to a situation where governments and organizations are, are sitting down um discussing that and, and drawing up um, plans for what happens if someone dies in space and sort of jurisdiction and things like that? The good news is that, that it's already being thought of. NASA are already working on it. Space agencies know this. They know, I, I'm not the first to, by any means, to, to have this sort of discussion. Um, this is being thought of. My reminder is, as we go forward, let's not forget about it. Let's not put it in the in the too difficult pile of the, 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 the yuck pile. Let's Keep it as as part of the discussion of space flight, as part of the, the, you know, remembering what humans are. So good news is this is something that people are thinking about. This is something that experts in the field are thinking about. Um, and I think, you know, I think we just have to keep, just have to keep awareness going so that those making the decisions will remember that this is part of the consideration that they need to take. Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting thinking about an established colony on the moon, um, on, on the moon and, um what what does happen as 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 people die you know over time because presumably it's quite expensive to to sort of ship ship <laughs> this is very morbid you're right but presumably it'd be quite expensive to um ship uh, bodies back to earth so presumably there may be some sort of graveyard on the moon or something like that but then but then are 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 there are there dangers with sort of contaminating the, the lunar surface as bodies decompose and things like that? I think a lot of it's going to depend on what the participants themselves are willing to sign up to. You know, uh, there, there is, this is where we need input from a wide range of stakeholders, cultural, you know, social, philosophical. It, it, I, I can design procedures quite happily, but I'm not a social anthropologist. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not somebody who is an expert in religion. So I think there's a, this is where we need to really cross disciplinary boundaries and bring in experts in the field we've got heritage issues to discuss you know we've got issues of what happens if somebody dies near an apollo landing site that's heritage management that we need to think of so there's a whole range of expertise that that i don't have um, that i think we need to start bringing in and that, that start need to be at the table discussing this and again the good news is we have anthropologists discussing this we have sociologists discussing this so this is all being thrown in there and I think we just need to pull it together holistically so that it becomes part of mainstream discourse rather than something that that's that's slightly offbeat and seen as as, as slightly far out. 
I suppose even just sort of um, getting beyond, um, you know, uh, death in space, um, there, there there must be other other areas um, of legality that would need to be refined because di- different nation states, as we know, have different attitudes to even things like um, drug taking or, or something like theft and different ways of handling it and different severe or less severe sentences. So you, you would need a consensus on, on pretty much everything, wouldn't you? Well, again, it's really interesting. You asked me at the start of this discussion, what is space law and why do we need it? And you've just answered the question exactly there, because where there's humans, there is going to be all of this activity that's going to occur. And it's going to need regulating, whether that's light touch regulation, whether that's just acknowledging that it happens and good luck, or whether it's a rigorously maintained safety regime that absolutely ensures that there's no access to space for anything other than what states want to go up there. That's a discussion for, for the, for, you know, for, for broader minds and, and broader sort of forums than this. But it is something that we need to start thinking about. It is something that we need to need to address. The glamour and the sort of the the you know the, the legendary tinged Apollo missions and and all of those such things, they're great and they're they're very useful to attract people into the space world. But very quickly I think those of us involved in it need to move away from that. And we actually need to make space mundane. We need to think about the day-to-day aspects of how we actually live our lives on Earth and transpose those questions up to space. So, yes, in answer to your question, you're right, we do need that. And that's why there, not only is there space law, that's why there's a a vibrant future for space law as well. Is there any um, chance or um, way of current space law addressing some of the situations that, that already exist and some of some of the issues that, that people have. I mean, cer- certainly with uh, v- uh, visual astronomy and, and amateur astronomers and practical astronomers, one of the things that we often hear is uh, there are too many artificial satellites, they're, they're spoiling my view. There doesn't, doesn't seem to be any any regulation with that. Is space law in, in, in a way allowed to sort of a, a address things like that? I think one of the things that I'm always cautious about and one of the things I'm anxious to stress is the limits of what law can actually do. Um, when I'm talking about space, I generally talk about space governance, which is bigger than law, because the, you know the laws are, the, are, are there and they're enshrined, and then there's underneath that there's a whole range of non-binding, you know, practical agreements. Um, we talk about regulation. Regulation and laws are, are, are different things. Regulation is is done by experts and usually has a safety focus, and is usually done, you know, in agreement and and under the auspices of a law. So we've got a whole range of different things going on here. And the law will the law will be the result of, of, of what the international community decides. The law will be a result of consensus. If it's good consensus and if it's built on firm foundations, then the law will be good and the law will be accepted. If it's not, the law will be ignored and it won't do any it won't do any good. So almost we're at a situation where I think discussions about the law are largely putting the cart before the horse. What we really need is for the international community of astronomers, of users of space, of operators, and of people who are, you know, not connected with the space industry, but either like looking up at the sky or like the the benefits that extended connectivity brings. People need to get a consensus of when it's gone too far. That's a big decision. That's something that lawyers can't make. Lawyers can advise on, you know, how to codify it, how to limit it, possible incentives, possible sanctions, but really, truly, 
it's not, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to defend the lawyers here because it's, it's not up to them to make decisions about the space, you know, the space environment. The space environment needs to be protected by all users of the space environment. Yeah, I mean, you're you're obviously coming from from space law as someone who's who's really passionate about about space and and, and space flight. Do you, like just on on a personal level, do you think we're doing too much too quickly? Do you think humans can be sort of, for want of a better word, do you think humans can be trusted with this un, unspoiled un, this unspoiled region that that we're just sort of exploring? I think the precedents are not good. I think we are not. You know, we haven't shown ourselves to be particularly good stewards of the of, of planet earth and despite a number of wonderful you know suggestions as to how to improve the space environment we don't seem to be getting any closer to protecting that environment protecting the sanctity of that environment so whilst I, as you say i am very passionate about space exploration i'm a great advocate for space exploration because i think not from a not from a mercantile or a commercial point of view, but I think from a human opportunities point of view, it offers so much. It offers the opportunity for us to emerge from the the narrow political conflicts that we've been involved in. It it it, it allows the world to be seen holistically rather than as an industrialized part, a developing part, a conflict part. A, you know, I, I want to move away from that, and I think space exploration is probably our best chance, if you like, to to borrow a phrase is to reboot the franchise you know because i think we absolutely need to do that where i think that where i think the problem comes is it's stopping that it's stopping that development i mean how would we do it whether whether we think it's going too quickly or not the fact is it's happening and it shows no sign of not happening now i think actually the developments in technology are probably good it, you know the efficiencies that of reusability reusability used to be one of those sort of unicorn words didn't it that that people would that people would say oh it's reusable it wasn't really reusable you know whereas we're now trying to get to genuine reusability and that's got to be a good thing for the for the environment both you know terrestrially and and in space i think progress in space exploration is good i think we need to temper that with an awareness of what it is exactly we're doing and the limits of what we can do and more more significantly the limits of what we can repair. Yeah, I completely agree. I I just think it's we are with sort of Artemis and the, and the lunar gateway, you know, and a potentially a a space station um, in orbit around a moon potentially within our lifetime. I I think it's going to be really interesting over the next 10 20 years to see how all these these threads play out? I think so. I think you're right. I think we're we're almost at a tipping point, aren't we? For very much the last sort of 20 years or so, maybe even more than that, maybe, maybe 30 or 40 years, we've seen activity around low Earth orbit. Low Earth orbit, geostationary orbit, that's where we've been, that's where we've been living in space, that's where we've become comfortable with, that's where our operations have gone. We've sent the odd interplanetary probe out there, we've sent rovers to Mars, we've sent, you know, probes to Venus and Mercury and Pluto. We've had some great missions, but they've been the exception rather than the rule. The rule has genuinely been Leo activity, geoactivity. I think that what we're going to see over the next 10 years, if I'm looking into my crystal ball from a sort of a policy, an economic and, 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 a, and a business case, I think we're going to see that move to the moon. I think that's where we're going to go next. All of the all of the discussion seems to be focusing that way. It looks achievable with our technology. It looks achievable. We're not there yet, but we look like we're recapturing the ability to get 
get humans to the moon. So I think you're right. I think that's where that's where this becomes so interesting. And as I say to you, I, I'm I'm hugely optimistic about human space exploration. And I'm the reason I'm optimistic is because we need to start thinking about the we need to start thinking about the way in which this is regulated, the way in which this is managed, and the signs are there. People are doing it. People are thinking in a way that didn't really happen previously. So, you know, tremendous optimism, tremendous excitement, but a note of caution. Nice one. Yeah. Like, do Do you think just um, just just to finish? Do Do you think if um, if and when space tourism becomes a um, something that's actually achievable for 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 people like you and me? Do you, Do you think you, that 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 you would like to go on a, on a trip to the moon or, you know, a, a trip around the moon or stay in a space hotel or something like that. Does does, does the idea appeal, appeal to you? I must confess, I love space exploration and I love the idea of it, but I'm very terrestrial in my perspective. <laughs> you know, I like the feeling of solid ground. And, uh, you know, I, I, I am very much not made of the right stuff. So, <laughs> so, you know, in all honesty, I think possibly, you know, if it was a very well-established system and if it was, a, you know, I'm not looking for the excitement of space exploration. Let's put it like that. I, I, I'm not a thrill seeker. I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I'd want it to be a fairly sedate progress. Um, so, you know, I, I think I think I'll probably leave it for others to enjoy. Um, and I'll, 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 I'll sit at home marveling at the wonder of it. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, well, Chris, uh, thanks very much for coming on the podcast and for speaking to us today. It's been um, absolutely fascinating. It's a whole area I didn't even really know existed until a few weeks ago. Um, so thanks very much for, for sharing with us. And it's been really great. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Brittany Colley. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify. Spotify.